Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together with your people. We thank you for this opportunity to worship, to pray, to listen to your word. We just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come today, that you would open our hearts, our ears, our minds to you, and that when we leave today, that we would be more like you. And so we ask these things in your name. Amen. So today we're talking about hope, and hope is one of my favorite words, my favorite concepts. It's something that I've struggled with for many seasons of my life. In the four years that Kyle and I walked through infertility and miscarriage, hope was hard to hold on to. Um, but because of that journey and the role that worship played in it, the role that fellow believers played in it, um, I'm excited to be able to share this sermon with you this morning. I want to start with this quote. It says, Hope smiles from the threshold of the year to come, whispering, it will be happier. This immediately made me think of New Year's Eve 2019. There was so much hype about 2020 and how awesome this new decade was going to be, how amazing this new year was going to be. And I think we all know that the joke was on us, right? We're almost two years in, and I think most of us would be happy to kind of rewind and just skip these last couple of years, a lot of the things that we've, that's happened. Hope is not just something, though, that we talk about at Christmas or at New Year's. It's something that is talked about a lot in our world. If you're on social media, there's no shortage of quotes about hope, usually accompanied by flowers and words like, if you just hope enough, if you fight for hope, if you hold on to hope, you can find hope, right? It's this kind of elusive thing that we're seeking after that maybe if we could just get a hold of it and we could hold on to it, maybe we'd find some happiness, Maybe we'd find some peace. There's even this famous poem from Emily Dickinson that used to be one of my favorites until I wrote this sermon and realized I don't really agree with it. <laughs> it says, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. As I've, I've looked at hope, as I've looked at where our hope comes from, I've realized that our world offers lots of forms of hope. Some are easier to accomplish than others, but none are really lasting or true. I think the first path to hope that our world holds out to us is wealth. I'm not sure if you've watched the documentary Lula Rich. It's about LuLaRoe, which was a clothing company that was really popular in like the earlier part of the 2000s. Um, and they held out this hope to women that if they would just invest a few thousand dollars, they could work from home, and it was either stay-at-home moms or um, couples, but they could quit their jobs, they could work from home, and they could make all this money and go on these vacations and buy cars and buy new houses. But as you watch the documentary, you begin to realize they weren't selling clothes, they were selling hope. And they asked the initial investors who came in and were selling the clothes and who were making lots of money, they would say to them, like, you have to, like, spend a lot of money and live this extravagant lifestyle so that other people want to join your team. Because if they see how you're living and how amazing your life is, they'll want a piece of that, right? But as time goes on, it kind of starts to fall apart. Because the only people making a lot of money are just the people at the very top. And then there's some people in the middle who are maybe making a little bit of money, and then there's the people that are going into bankruptcy 
right? Because they can't support this, this thing. And as women would come to them and complain to the founders of LuLaRoe, they would say to them, you're just not working hard enough. If you would work harder, you'd sell more. If you just tried harder, you'd sell more. And so as they <clears throat> continued on in this, they realized that the hope was a false hope and that it actually left them in more, in more wealth, they had less wealth and had more financial issues. Another path to false hope that our world offers is hedonism. I found this definition on the internet, so you know, it's gotta be true. It says, hedonism is the belief that pleasure or the absence of pain extreme is shown in something like the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, which I did not watch, I read the synopsis, and when like a lot of people who don't even love Jesus are like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen, <laughs> you kind of just <clears throat> don't need to even go there, but they were, um, this is just an interesting tidbit, they were snorting B12 in place of cocaine, and they did so much of that that one of the stars had to go to the hospital and be treated for bleeding in his nose because they were like that was just so much a part of like their lifestyle and how much they were doing it over and over again in scenes. But the whole point of The Wolf of Wall Street is the rise of this young stockbroker who's living a lifestyle of wealth and drugs and sex, but it ultimately collapses. And he ends up in prison, and he writes then a book, that's kind of how he makes his money, telling the story of his own collapse. So, but it's not just that extreme hedonism that can lead to disappointment. When we buy things we don't have money for, when we eat things that we don't need to eat, when we can't stop looking at porn because we can't find, figure out a way to stop the addiction, we're left with more pain. And often that pain isn't just our pain, but it's the pain of our family. When we can't pay our bills, when our health starts to decline because we're not taking care of ourselves, and when the addictions just keep coming and taking over more and more space in our heart and our minds, we're left with more pain. And in the end, there's no hope. There's more hopelessness. The final path the world offers to hope is, I think this is a little generational, so I think for older generations, it's rugged individualism. I think for younger generations, it's self-actualization. Self-actualization is finding and living your own truth, being your most authentic self. And it feels like for people who are really wounded, the more bizarre their authentic self, the better. Right? Like, let me just go to the nth degree, because I want to be the only, I want to be special. I want to feel important. So I'm going to pick this thing that's so far out there and make that my identity. I'm going to become that. And anybody who tells me I'm not doesn't know my truth. And they can't speak into that because they don't know me and they don't know who I really am. I think for older generations, it's rugged individualism. It's this idea that I can be right. I can be above the law. As Americans, we value pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We value hard work, achieving the American dream, which I think sometimes comes down to either having enough land or enough money that no one can tell you what to do and to be above the law. Kyle and I were talking about this this week. Um, we were watching a show I would not recommend, unless you have a remote, Yellowstone. Um, but we, part of the reason why it's interesting to me is because I grew up in South Dakota. And so as I, we watched this, Kyle said, you know, watching this makes me realize why you kind of like are a little like when people from Bazetta are like, I have my land, I live in the country, I live on my land, and no one can tell me what to do. And I said, well, what's funny to me about that is almost anywhere around here where you live, even if you live in the country, you can still see your neighbors, and maybe all your neighbors, potentially, depending on where you live. 
So in South Dakota, when you live in the country, you live in the country, and you are driving like miles sometimes before you see another person. Like it is pitch black at night. Kyla's not here, but she was in the video. I used to babysit her when she was little, and her mom would have to drive like an hour one way to pick me up and then drive an hour back to her house. <laughs> so, I mean, she lived in the middle of nowhere. Um, but I think that there's this American ideal that's like, I want to be my own boss. I want to have my own space and there no one can tell me what to do, and no one can tell me how to live. The problem is that can become so consuming to us that we spend our whole lives chasing after it, and at the end, we have nothing left. We might have the land if you've been able to hold on to it and fight for it, but you might not have relationships. And what comes to mind for me is kind of this American cowboy ideal, and it's like Clint Eastwood when he's old and grumpy and like has that rifle sitting on his porch, and he's like, I dare you. Like, come on. Um, I think that as we look at that idea of American independence, that the problem is it's so much still leaves us wanting so much. It still leaves us alone. It still leaves us isolated. And it's a false hope. The world holds out these versions of false hope. Wealth, hedonism, individualism, self-actualization. But we quickly find that they fall short and that they really offer nothing more than temporary fixes. And those temporary fixes leave us weary, they leave us empty, and they leave us searching for something more. This morning, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 1. As we start the Christmas story, we find hope is in short supply. God's people have been waiting for a Messiah for centuries, longer than we can almost even imagine. They were living under an oppressive government who was hostile toward them completely, valued nothing about who they were. And to top it all off, they hadn't heard from God, nothing from God, for 400 years. That's longer than our country has been in existence. For 400 years, silence from God. Hope was quickly fading. God's silence was deafening. Some of you have found yourself in that place. I know I have where I'm seeking God, I'm trying to believe what's true, but there's just stillness, there's just silence, and all I can do is try to hold on to the truth. But I, I, I question, I wonder, is he there? Will he keep his promises? So this Advent season, how do we hold on to hope? How does worship help us find a hope that lasts? Let's start in verse 26 of Luke 1. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of the Lord will never fail. 
Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe the Lord would do what he said. In the midst of the spiritually dark time for the people of God, a young woman is visited by an angel. Now, to our imaginations that have been shaped by shows like Touched by an Angel or Hallmark movies, this seems like that would be a really cool thing, right? Like, God sends this, like, beautiful glowing angel to talk to you and tell you, like, oh, this exciting thing is going to happen. But let's rethink this in terms of biblical angels, which are terrifying, okay? Um, I'll have a picture later. You can look forward to that. Um, but biblical angels are fierce warriors that strike fear into every person that encounters them. In fact, even here it says, do not be afraid. Every time someone encounters an angel, the angel says to them, do not be afraid, which leads me to believe that there is something to fear, <laughs> right? So imagine with me again, a young woman, probably in her early teens, she's living her life, doing her thing, when all of a sudden a terrifying being is in her room giving her a cryptic message that God is with her. Verse 29 says, Mary was confused and disturbed. She, she had no idea what was going on. The angel goes on to explain that she'll give birth to a son who will be the son of the Most High. And of course, she asks the question that any woman in her position would be like, how does that happen? I'm a virgin. He responds in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. Okay, <laughs> right? Like, I guess that clears it up. I'm not really sure. The Holy Spirit's not really something they talked about a lot in this time. That's something we're more familiar with, right? So she's just gotten a really confusing explanation to something that literally defies explanation, right? Okay. The angel also tells her that her cousin Elizabeth, who has always been barren, is six months pregnant with a son, and he says the word of God will never fail. And Elizabeth's response, or, sorry, Mary's response in this moment, and what I honestly kind of think my response would have been, she could have said, no thank you, like this is too much, I don't understand, I don't have clarity, I am not interested in this. This will cost me too much. Because at this point, all she, you know, I don't even know how much time she had to process it, but there's so much cost to her. She could lose her family relationship. She could use, lose her fiance. She could lose her good standing in the community as a woman of moral uprightness, right? But she doesn't. She says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. In the midst of so much confusion, so much, so such a lack of knowledge, she says yes. Mary then travels to Judea to see her cousin Elizabeth, and as she greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth's baby leaps within her, and then as Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, she says to Mary, you are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. In our search for hope this Christmas, we find that worship is surrender. Surrender is not a word that we really like, Surrender is a hard word. 
Surrender means laying down our agenda for an agenda that often we don't understand without answers to our questions. Worship is living a life surrendered to God's will even when we can't see or understand the future. Our hope isn't what in what we can see or understand. It's in the one who's leading us. It's not in following God as long as it makes sense, as long as he gives us the answers that we want. Worship is surrender to a God who loves us and is for us, even in our darkest moments. The world tells us that when we truly understand ourselves, we'll have hope. When we, when we truly understand who we are, we'll have hope. But Mary shows us that living a surrendered life where we trust God with the outcome is a life of worship that leads to true hope. My question for you this morning is what needs surrendered in your life? What's keeping you from worship? What are you holding on to that won't let you worship God wholeheartedly? Is it a desire for wealth or maybe just security? Is it an addiction that you're using to avoid the pain or to find temporary pleasure? Is it just that you literally don't want anyone telling you what to do and you just want to live life on your own terms? Or is it that you're someone who needs to know the next step and the next step and the next step before you'll say yes, who struggles to trust God? Next, we're going to talk about how worship is a response to the unfailing character of God. Worship is surrender, and worship is a response to the unfailing character of God. After this exchange between Mary and Elizabeth, Mary responds. She breaks out into a song of hope showing us that worship is what we do when we, when we encounter the unfailing character of God, even before his promises come to fruition. Let's look at verses 46 through 55. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Why do we sing in church? Some of you are asking, why do we have to sing in church? Some of you love it, others of you don't. But for centuries, the people of God have gathered together and sang together. When Mary's act of surrender is confirmed by the Holy Spirit through her cousin, because that's what happens right there in that encounter between her and Elizabeth, Mary um, has said, yes, Lord, do what you will with me. She, she encounters Elizabeth, and the Holy Spirit through Elizabeth says, yes, the Lord is pleased with you. You have made the right choice. As that happens, Mary is overcome with the hope that resides within her, and she breaks into song, a song who, that celebrates who God is and what he is going to do, a song that highlights the fact that God saw her. Out of all the people on this globe, God saw her, a lowly servant girl. That God is holy and has done great things specifically in her life. That God shows mercy from generation to generation. He has not forgotten his people. 
that he brings low the princes, the proud and the rich, and that he exalts the poor and the merciful and gives the hungry food to eat. Most of all, he is a God who remembers and fulfills his promises. We sing when we come together because it is a response to the unfailing character of God. And in our darkest moments, when we can't see the next step, when God is silent, the enemy loves to attack us in those moments. He loves to come to us and say, you haven't heard from God. Are you sure he really loves you? Are you sure he sees you? Are you sure that he knows your pain? I'm not sure if you're really his child. You seem to be doubting. Are you sure you trust him? Are you sure you're his? The enemy delights in planning lies in those moments when we are in our darkest, mom- when our darkest moments. And worship or singing truths about who God is recalibrates our hearts and our minds. It reminds us what is true and what our real reality is. That God does love us, that he does see us, and that we are his. And when we sing together, that gives us the strength to stay faithful even when we don't know what the very next step is. And when we stand together in these moments on Sunday mornings, when we come together and we sing together with other followers of Jesus and we sing what is true, we are reminded that we don't journey alone. That the enemy is a liar who would have us believe that we are isolated, that we are alone, and that no one understands us and no one really knows us. But we're not alone in our pain. We're not alone in our doubts. We're not alone in our grief because we have Jesus who walks with us. I can't help but think that as Mary sang this song in response to the Holy Spirit's encouragement and affirmation through Elizabeth, that her hope in the very baby that she carried increased and that her certainty about who God is was strengthened. I even wondered if throughout her pregnancy, throughout their trip fleeing to Egypt, throughout Jesus's life, if she didn't return to the song to remind her the truth of who God is and the promises that he had given her. We need to be reminded of that truth, especially in our darkest moments. Worship that leads to hope is surrender. It's a response to the unfailing character of God, and it is a practice that requires intentionality. My favorite Christmas carol lyric is, A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. We've got a plaque of it in our house, like all things with words. And I love to be reminded of that because we live in a weary world, right? We're weary. We're weary of fights over masks and vaccines and um, COVID variants and politics and the economy and who's right and who's wrong. I'm weary of a world that seems to celebrate bad news. I mean, even Ohio State lost this weekend, right? (laughs) We didn't watch it. I had to look it up on the internet, not going to (laughs) lie. But it seems that our world and about the people, whether that's on social media or or cable news, they delight in things that bring us anxiety, that create division, that, that draw us to fear, right? And so we get tired of hearing such bad news. We're weary. So how do we find a hope that perseveres in the midst of that weariness? We sing the songs that we sing because of the truth they contain. So let's take a closer look at O Holy Night. It's super hard to sing. But the words are good. So it says, oh, I'm not going to sing it for you, by the way. <laughs> Someone from the first service was like, it's a good solo song. I was like, yeah, not for me. Thank you. Um, oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared 
and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O oh, hear the angel voices. In this carol, the hope isn't a thing, but a person. And his arrival is met with worship, and not just singing, but an actual intentional posture of worship. Fall on your knees, O oh, hear the angel voices. Let's just take a moment to talk about how we feel silly using our bodies in worship, okay? I grew up in a tradition where we didn't do that, so it was it's very uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable for me. It's something I've grown in. Um, there's still moments where it feels uncomfortable and weird to me. It makes me feel self-conscious. Even as I was writing this sermon, I was convicted about how much I think about myself when I'm responding bodily in worship and how that defies what the whole purpose of what I'm trying to do, right? So here's my question. We go to sporting events, we go to plays, we go to concerts, sometimes even a good movie before COVID when everyone went to movies. Um, and we respond physically, right? We jump up and down, we shout, we clap, we cheer. Sometimes people paint their bodies and wear crazy wigs. Um, as I was looking for, for a picture of this today, I was like, first of all, I was trying to find one that wasn't scary because a lot of sports fans are very scary when they're like in their intense, like the pictures. I was looking for one that had some joy and some excitement and not just like, we're coming to get you. Um, but my question is, we will do those things with abandon, right? We will jump up and down, we will shout, we will scream, we will cheer, we will clap for things that, I hate to tell you this, don't really have eternal value right? Like, I'm sure sports is going to be part of heaven because so many people love it so much, but I don't think it's the main thing that's happening. Pretty sure about that. Um, so here's my question. Why are we so hesitant to physically worship the God who sent his son to die for us, to be resurrected so that we could know him? Why are we so fearful of raising our hands in worship to this king who gave everything so that he could know us? Why is it that we hesitate to clap or kneel or show our gratitude and our love for him? Why is it that sometimes we even just resist singing with all of our hearts to this one who knows us and loved us and has called us his own? See, we want hope, but we don't want it to cost us anything. We don't want to feel awkward. We don't want to feel weird. We don't want to feel self-conscious. But if hope is a person and the person is Jesus, then it does cost. These hourish long Sunday morning gatherings that we have, these are like mini dress rehearsals for eternity where worship will be happening 24-7. Revelation 4, 8 through 11 says, Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive honor and glory and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. In heaven, there's going to be worship 
that involves our whole selves. This is just a dress rehearsal. Now, to bring us up for air, I have a mini little Bible college joke. So, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this going around on the internet, but this is what a biblical angel at the top of your tree would look like, right? Six wings, eyes all over. Do you see this? This is enough to like give you nightmares at night. <laughs> um, all right, I just had to, I saw that this week and I was like, oh, that's really funny. Okay. Actually, Danny, the intern, shared it, so I can blame him. Worship is a practice that takes intentionality. It means that we have to be vulnerable. It means we have to be obedient to show up even when we don't feel like it. It means taking risks and sometimes feeling silly, not because God wants to shame us, but because he is worthy of all our honor and all our praise. He's worthy of our entire lives. And this worship that requires surrender that evokes a response to God's unfailing character, and that requires intentional practice, this worship points us to Jesus, who is our hope, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how dark things are. And unlike Emily Dickinson's poem that says at the end, yet never an extremity, it asked a crumb of me, this hope embodied in Jesus asks everything of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our hope. We thank you that in our darkest moments, that you are the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. So we pray, Father, that we would be transformed by that hope. In your name, amen.